We are finishing up the seven churches of Revelation tonight. We are on our last church, the church of Laodicea. The city is located in the what's known as the Lycus River Valley. It is also there with Heropolis and Colossae. The valley is a nat- makes a, a sort of a natural roadway, road of travel from east to west. So you would kind of want to go through this valley pathway because otherwise you're going up hills. So most people like to avoid them. And so it made a natural path, pathway for it. In the, um, well, some history there. The city was founded by the Seleucid king Antiochus II. Not one we cover a whole lot. And the name for his wife, Laod- Laodice. That was around the year of 260 B.C. There's also another way to spell her name. I've seen it both. I just picked one and stayed with this one. Uh, Apparently, the uh, city of Laodicea received the gospel message not from Paul, but from one of his helpers, uh, most specifically Epaphras, during the time that Paul was over in Ephesus. Ephesus was a place where he stayed for about two or three years. And during that time, it seems that Epaphras had gone over and taken the message over to Laodicea. Uh, We do have a mention of a letter that Paul wrote to the church of Laodicea. That letter is either not known where it is, or as some have supposed, it may be the letter to the church of Ephesus. When When the letter to the church of Ephesus first started circulating, there was no name on it. And it eventually got, came to be known as the um, epistle to the uh, Ephesians. Some suppose that because that's where it first started circulating. It may have been a more general letter to the churches in the area, or it may have been to that particular city, or it may also have been to Laodicea. What is interesting is that if, uh, if, it went, if there was a letter to Laodicea and a letter to uh, Ephesus, those are the only two cities to receive a letter from both John and Paul. More than likely, though, only one of them did. Only one of those cities received a letter from both. And saying the letter that John had brought from the head of the church. The Antiochus, when he founded this city, he, he uh, populated it with Syrians and Jews who were transplanted from Babylonia to the cities of Phrygia, and Lydia. For a long time, Laodicea was on this very big highway, but it, became a, it was a very insignificant city, even though it was on this big expanse east to west, the main travel route east to west. It really didn't come into its own until about 190 B.C. is when it really became very popular. And that is when the Romans founded the, uh, or the, had the province of Asia. And when that occurred, then a lot more traffic was going through the city and it became a place of wealth. Up until then, it was just kind of a small-time city, nothing real, real big. They became especially known for black wool. They had a particular uh, type of, of sheep that would grow, that, would, uh, uh, that they had there, and it was a very soft black wool. They were also known for a hospital, a place of medicine. There was a uh, school of medicine that was there, and they became... Uh, very famous for an eye salve that they had made that uh, when you rubbed it on your eyes, it actually burned, but they had a lot of success with it in battling some of the diseases that they had in those days. And that is most of our history.
on this. It does become a city of great wealth, even though it was not until the uh, Asia area was, was uh, until the province of Asia came into being with Rome. It became so rich, though, that there was an earthquake that completely wiped out the city. And Rome offered to help them rebuild. They offered them money. And they said, no. <laughs> they said, no. We have enough money. The uh, earthquake, I believe I wrote the year, the year, the earthquake was in the year 60 A.D. 60 A.D. was that uh, year that earthquake. I think it's also the same earthquake that affected some of the other cities in, their, in the region. It was uh, quite a banking center as well. In fact, it had so much money there. There was, uh, I can't think of his name, but there was this one particular king who had these huge uh, credit letters. And he waited until he got to Laodicea to cash them in because no other city he felt like could handle it. Verse 14 of Revelation chapter 3. And to the angel of the church of Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So he first off starts, starts with identifying himself. He's going to identify them as well, but he starts off by identifying himself. Jesus is the Amen. amen. <laughs> this is, now our word Amen is a transliteration from this word. It's spelled exactly alike. It's not a typo. I spelled it out for you in the English, the way we do the uh, English, a lot of Greek words, but it looks exactly the same. It also is a transliteration of the Hebrew word. So you have a transliteration of the Greek word from Hebrew and then a transliteration of that word into English. So we get this word, Amen. It was a very common word. Well, it means truly, surely, so let it be, indeed. It is a very common word used by Jesus. Jesus used this word all the time. And when I tell you how it's translated, you're going to say, oh, yeah, he did. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he's saying, amen, amen, is what he is saying. How many times did Jesus use that phraseology? I looked over the, the, where this word was used, and about two-thirds of the time, Jesus is using this word. Now, Jesus used it mostly to, this is the big difference. I just saw this when I was looking at it in the, in the uh, Greek text of these things. But Jesus used it mostly to announce a truth. Not entirely, but mostly. Um, there was a handful of times he used it otherwise, but most of the time it's verily, verily I say unto you. He's announcing the truth. Almost all of the other times that people used it in the New Testament, they used it to conclude a truth or as the ending of a prayer. But Jesus was the one who announced the truth with it. Only one that I could see who did that. So he's saying, I am the amen, the true, the, the one who is sure. This is how he's identifying himself to them. I am the amen, the amen. And the, in the Greek, the article comes before each of these words, which means we're not re referring to a general true or surely. We are speaking about the amen. And to the angel of the church of Laodiceans write, these things says, the amen, the faithful, and the true witness is actually how the Greek words this. But if you, well, if you want to get specific about it, it actually puts it this way. The witness, the faithful, and the true. <laughs> That's how it actually puts it. And it makes a little bit more sense to us wording it in this way. 
These things says the Amen, the faithful and the true witness. Trench says that to be a witness, you must satisfy three conditions. First off, you must have seen with your own eyes. You cannot be a witness to something that you have not seen. You must be honest and speak with great accuracy. You must be honest and speak with great accuracy. And third, you must speak clearly and make your message plain to the listeners. According to Trench, if you want to be a witness, you must have seen with your own eyes, must be honest and speak with great accuracy, and must speak clearly and make your message plain to the listeners. So he says, these things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness. We already went over that word witness. That word witness is where we get our word martyr from. A martyr was one who stood as a witness of Jesus Christ and would not back down from being a witness and died for it. The beginning of the creation of God. All things that are created in the heavens and in the earth are created by Jesus. He is the creator of, the word tells us, all things. If Jesus is the creator of all things, then Jesus cannot be a created being. Right? If Jesus was a created being, then he could not be the creator of all things. He would be the creator of most things. But he's not. He is the creator of all things. And all things that were created were created by him. And it's very specific about there's nothing out there. There's nothing under the sun. There's nothing in heaven. There's nothing under the earth. There's nothing anywhere that he has not created. That's what it says about, about him. So he identifies himself here and he says, I... I know your works, which he says, of course, to everybody, that you are neither cold nor hot. This is the most famous thing about Laodicea, that they are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot, so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. That does not sound very nice. So they were lukewarm. In contrast, if you go up uh, north and... North, north and northeast, you're going to come up to the city of Heropolis. And Heropolis is a place that had hot springs, really hot springs. Springs that were so hot that if you were not careful, you could get in and scald yourself. They had hot springs. There's also Colossae. And Colossae was famous for cold water. Very cold water. Water that came out of the ground cold, filled with minerals, healthy, healthy things, naturally filtered, all that good stuff. And that's what they were famous for. If you wanted good water to drink, you went on down there to Colossae. If you wanted good water for a bath, for uh, healing springs, things like that, you went up to Heropolis. And then there's Laodicea, which had no famous water at all. In fact, they had a track theirs in. If you, did you go up on Facebook today and see the picture I put up? Mm-hmm. That is the aqueduct. That is some of the leftover aqueduct. Now, I didn't get two pictures up there, but I, there was another one I was considering doing. They actually had these pipes in the stone in the aqueduct, and they would pipe the water in there so it wasn't wide open to anything that would fall from the sky. It was actually covered. They piped it in five miles from the south, not from Heropolis and not from Colossae. I don't know why. I couldn't find the answer to that one, but they piped it in. They built the aqueduct five miles to the south, And they brought this water in from a hot spring. From what I gather, it's not as hot of a spring as Heropolis. 
but it was a hot spring. And so it would start out hot. It was a mineral spring, so it had minerals in it. And the minerals would build up a deposit on the aqueduct so that the aqueduct would actually become clogged. And so they had the top part, they had areas where it was covered with stone so they could uncover the stone and get in there and clean out the pipe when they, whenever they had to. And so this water would come down, but it would start out hot. And by the time it got there, going the five-mile trip, guess what? It wasn't cold. It wasn't hot. It was lukewarm. And the wording that is actually used here is saying it is it's actually a temperature that really has no temperature at all. Because if you put your hand in it, it just feels just like whatever you're in right now. It doesn't feel cold. It doesn't feel hot. It's just water. So he says... I wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, most times we think about cold and hot. How many of you always have this picture that cold represents the unsaved, those far away from God, and hot represents those that are on fire for God and ready to take on things? And that's uh, an, an interpretation that's been around a church for a long time. But think about this. God says, I would rather you be cold or hot. If he is talking about saved and unsaved, why would God prefer that you be cold? Now, are the folks at Laodicea unsaved? They are saved because they are getting a letter. <laughs> this is the church. That's right. This is the church. They are saved. He can I don't think there's any possible way he can be saying, I would rather have you not know about me or be on fire for me. I don't see how he could be saying that at all. Because why would the head of the church say, look, I'm going to give you some counsel. Either get cold or get hot. I don't think that's what he'd be saying. If that's what he was comparing it to, he would say, get hot. I don't want you cold. I don't want you lukewarm. I want you hot. But as far as water is concerned, if water to be effective for us to drink it, the most effective water is cold or hot. Now, some folks, you know, even in the summertime, they drink hot things. They drink hot coffee. They drink hot tea. I don't. If it is not below 30 degrees, I'm not touching hot tea. I, I just get too hot. If, I, if it's 35 and I drink hot tea, I just start cooking. So I don't do it. I don't drink hot tea. I like hot tea, but I won't drink it. It better be ice, ice cold stuff. I drink ice cold stuff, but I detest lukewarm water. One of the reasons I don't buy bottled water, I don't drink bottled water, is because bottled water, when you have it in the refrigerator, is nice and cold. And about five minutes after it's out of the refrigerator, is, it is not cold anymore. It's warm. And I do not like drink, drinking warm water. Don't like drinking warm water. I want water with ice in it. Lots of, I want more ice than water. Because I want that stuff to be cold if I'm going to be drinking it. That's just the, the way that I am. Now, other people, you know, they're, they're, they can, uh, I know, I have heard of some people actually drink lukewarm water and, and like it. We pray for people like that, but no, no not really. <laughs> but but um, if you want to be like God, spit it out of your mouth. <laughs> I mean, that's what he's saying, right? <laughs> So if you want to be like God, you've got to spit it out of your mouth. You've got to be either drinking hot water or cold water if you want to be like God. But I don't think he's talking about saved or unsaved, on fire or not on fire. He, he's, he seems to be talking more about effectiveness. 
or perhaps indifference. It would seem to be more along those lines. I, my, my thinking is effectiveness. That's where I kind of would lean to go, is that he's talking about you're, you're ineffective. You're not doing anything. If you were hot, you could do something. People would go to Heropolis for the hot water. If you were cold, you would do something. People go to Colossae for the cold water. No one comes to Laodicea for water. They don't come there for it. Now, it's interesting, though, that in the letter to Laodicea, there is nothing about false doctrine or false teachers. You don't see it at all. There's no mention of it. There's no mention of anyone in the city who's teaching false, as there were with some other ones. There's no mention about persecution. There is no mention about coming tribulation. All those things are, are, are gone. They're just not there. They were there with some other cities, but not here. There's no mention of standing for good doctrine, battling against bad doctrine. Nothing about that at all. So we have to look at what it is that he counsels them to do. Verse 17, because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Because you say, I am rich. They saw themselves as rich. Well, we got lots of money. We got so much money, we rebuilt our city. No help. They, they have this opinion about themselves. And it is an opinion because apparently God doesn't hold it. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. I am rich, I have become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. I think of all three of these things, the thing that bugs him the most is they think they have need of nothing. They feel that they have enough. And there are Christians even today who, who feel like, I, I don't need a whole lot. And we can get that way. We can get to a place where we feel like, well, I don't know that I need a whole lot in this area. I'm doing pretty good. I've got a pretty good amount of substance right here. You know, I've been studying the Word for a long time. I got a pretty, I'm pretty rich in the, in the area of Word. I don't think I need much more Word. That's the bad place to be. We think about it, um, uh, there's a lot of other, you go to other countries and you, you see some of the healing meetings and some of the things that are going on and people are being healed of miraculous things. You come over here to this country, you don't hear as many of the great healings. You don't hear a lot of the great meetings going on. Why is that? Maybe it's because we don't feel like we need it. Because what do we have instead? We've got some of the great hospitals. We've got some of the great doctors. We've got knowledge. We've got wisdom and understanding. We've got medicines. Oh, we've got all kinds of stuff. What do we need healing for? Why do I have to go to a meeting and get healed when I can just go to the hospital and let the doctor give me a, uh, some medication or a shot or a transfusion or whatever it is that I need? When we get to that place where we feel like we do not have a need, then we tend to rest on our own stuff. And we can do that anything. We can do that anywhere. Well, pastors, we can sometimes say, you know, I preached a lot of sermons. I got plenty of sermons. I don't need God for more sermons. Now, you wouldn't come right out and say that, but, you know, sometimes when you're first going after it, you're uh, praying to God all the time, seeking God, don't know what to, what to do. And then, well, you know, I kind of know a lot of stuff now. I don't really need God to open up stuff to me. I'm, I can just go out there with what I got. Well, that's wrong. We get into a place where I don't need anything. You get into the area of worship. 
And what do we do? Well, you know, I've been playing worship music for a lot of years now. I've been singing worship music for a lot of years. I kind of know what to do. I don't really think that I need to spend that hour or two hours in prayer before the worship service that I used to do. I can just kind of go in there cold. Well, I've been witnessing to a lot of people for a lot of years. I don't know that I need to pray before I go out there and do it. I can just kind of go in there and whatever comes to me, we'll just... See, we can get to that place where we feel like I have sufficiency in myself and I don't need something else. I don't need it. And we can become a little lazy. We can get a little lax in what it is that we do. And sometimes we're not pushing for it as much as we were before. I'll tell you what, we need to push for it. Because no matter how much we know, we don't know a candle next to God. And there's a whole lot more we can be learning. And there's a whole lot deeper we can be going. And we need to keep on, we need to keep pressing in. We need to keep going after God. We need to keep uh, doing what God says. And, and hearing what he has to say. Prayer is important. We need to be praying. I hope I never get to the place where I decide I don't need to get up so early on a Sunday morning and get in here and report to the prayer closet, so to speak, and hear from God. I hope I never get to that spot. I know that it can happen. And so we have to make sure that we be careful. In whatever ministry, whatever it is that we do, whatever it is that God uses us, prayer is an important part. Jesus knew so much about the Word that He stumped people all around Him. And yet, what's He doing all the time? Before ministry, before picking disciples, before... Uh, whatever, he's always, he's in there praying. He's in there praying. Follow his example. Let's go his way. So their opinion of themselves was that they were rich, wealthy, and had need of nothing. Rich, that was their opinion. We're rich, we're wealthy, we have need of nothing. Opinions can keep us from seeing the truth. Opinions can keep us from seeing the truth. Let us jump, jump on down here to get down here to the end. Uh, I put this on your rat line. We are not entitled to wrong opinions. How many of you ever heard people out there, especially today? You know, we, everybody's got all these different opinions about different things that are going on. And you are not entitled to a wrong opinion. People, if you talk to people, you'll ask them, well, I can have that opinion if I want to. If it's right, you are entitled only to a right opinion. You are not entitled to a wrong one. So I put it in here this way. We are not entitled to wrong opinions, and whatever ones we do have come with a price. We will pay for whatever wrong opinion we have. How many people do you know out there that have the opinion that healing is not for today? Yeah, we had, is, is it fact? No, it's, it's their opinion. And you can go through the Word and show it to them, here, 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 but they say, well, I, you know, that's your opinion. I have mine. No, it's not my opinion. It says it in the Word. Will they pay a price? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, they'll pay a price. Absolutely. There'll be people who say have the opinion that any way to get to heaven is fine. That's their opinion. The Word of God says only one way. Jesus is the way. Oh, that's his opinion. No, <laughs> that's his fact. That's what he says. You're entitled to 
an opinion as long as it's right. But if you have a wrong opinion, you will pay a price for it. You're not entitled to have it. There's a lot of people who have that thinking. And uh, that's not necessarily true. We do pay a price for the things that we know that are wrong. I like the way he phrases this. Because you say an opinion. I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know. <laughs> You're saying this. You have this opinion, but you don't know. See, there's a, there's a difference between opinion based on supposition and facts. And Jesus says, you better have your facts in order. Opinion based on supposition, that's not going to get you anywhere. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Yeah, they didn't see that. No, no, we got lots of money, got lots of stuff. We're, we're in good shape. I don't, I, don't see what the, I don't see what the deal is here. Well, the word there for wretched means devastated or wretched. It's only used twice in the New Testament. The other time is in Romans chapter 7, verse 24. Oh, wretched man that I am, who would deliver me from this body of death? That's what he's saying that they're in the condition of. He says miserable, or another way to put it is pitiable. In 1 Corinthians 15, 19, only other places is used. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. If, if, if we don't have a, another life to go to after this, man, we are in bad shape. We're in the worst shape of everybody. Because we're living this life in a certain way, anticipating going to another kingdom. And we aren't going. That would be bad. That would be <laughs> we're the most pitiable. Poor is the word that's used of a beggar. In Luke chapter 16, this one's used a lot of times. This word's used a lot of times in the New Testament. But Luke chapter 16, I pulled this one out. Verse 20, but there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. That's the word that is used. It describes a beggar. He says, you are poor, but we have money. We got lots of money. We got wealth. We got all this stuff out here. He says, you're poor. You're a beggar. We're not just talking about not making your bills all that well. He says, poor. You are a beggar. Blind. He says, they are blind. This from a city who makes an eye salve to help other people with eyes that could be going blind, he is telling them, you are blind. <laughs> I mean, he's using language that they can understand. And then he says, you are naked. And you know what that word means? Naked, not a stitch of clothing. It's gone. In Mark chapter 14, verse 51, now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young man laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. This was the man who was wandering around when Jesus was met with the soldiers in the garden. And Jesus said to the soldiers, I am. And they all fell over backwards. And then they got up and Jesus said, whom do you seek? I've already told you that I am he. Let these other ones go. Well, that force of power was so great, it seems to have resurrected a young man who was probably not buried yet. Because the cloth that he was wrapped in, in this passage of Scripture, is the cloth that they bury people in. And when they bury people, they bury them 
naked. And they put this cloth over top. And he was wandering around. What happened? And he had this one cloth on and somebody grabbed it and he left it behind. <laughs> he didn't know what's going on yet. And so the, the supposition here is that this man was resurrected. You imagine him walking on back. What, what are you doing here? I don't know. It's in the garden. It's all these soldiers. It's a guy who used to be in the temple. I don't know what happened. You were dead. I was. Man. <laughs> Boy, that would be a fun conversation, wouldn't it? Some people have, supp have supposed that this was Mark because it's Mark's gospel that records this. But Mark's gospel comes from Peter. Peter is the one who narrates it to, to Mark, and Mark actually puts it, puts it down. And they put this in here that Mark, Mark wrote it this way because it was himself. No, if Mark was wandering around the garden with the disciples, he was not wearing this kind of clothing, and he had clothing on underneath whatever I thought he would have been wearing. He would not have been naked. Look at the counsel that Jesus gives them. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. Can you imagine buying gold from God? I mean, how many, who, who wants to get in line for that? So here's the counsel, he says. I counsel you to buy, me, buy from me gold refined in the fire. They may be saying, we got gold. We got gold, we got silver, we got all kinds of stuff. We're rich. He says, no, you need to buy gold from me. Gold that is refined in the fire. Well, all gold is refined in the fire. No, no, no. He's not talking about that. He's talking about gold refined in his fire. He's talking about his gold refined in his fire. He says, in order that you may be rich and white garments, that you may be clothed because they were naked, because they are poor. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, in verse 11, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as though uh, through fire. Remember the rich man who came to Jesus and said, What must I do to be saved? And he said, Go sow all you have, and you will have treasure in heaven with me. And in this, he also talked about this life as well, but uh, more specifically, we're looking at in heaven, he would have treasure. What makes us rich in the eyes of God? What we have here on earth? No, because it won't go over to the other side. The only thing that God looks at that would make us rich is what we have that carries over to the other side. And so when he says you need to buy gold from me, the way that you buy it is that you have works that are tried as through the fire. That when the enemy, Satan, when his kingdom comes against us and hits us with all manner of tests and trials, trying to get the word in us to be extracted... To become out, again, the parable of the sower. Love that parable. First parable of one of the most fun parables. We just went over again on Sunday. Three different ways in which the enemy attacks. But you will see that the enemy refines it by fire. If he can't steal it through lack of understanding, he comes against it with tribulation, with persecution. He comes against it with the cares of this life. 
He comes against it with things. And, and when you resist that, you are taking your works and refining them by fire so that they become gold that is purchased from God. Amen. You don't get there being lukewarm. Amen. You don't get there being ineffective. You get there by being effective, doing things that are going to come over to the other side. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. Because right now, all you got as soon as you die, it is gone. Every bit of it is gone. You got nothing. You're going to come up here, you have nothing. You're going to say, where's my stuff? It's gone. It's not there. Other people down there, they're using it right now. But you got nothing that came up over here. And white garments that you may be clothed because they're naked. They say, wait, we got, I got closets full of stuff. No, you're naked. You need these white garments. In Revelations 3 and verse 5, he who overcomes... He who overcomes, he who goes through the test and trials and overcomes shall be clothed in white garments and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father, before his angels. If you want God's white garments, you need to overcome. When the enemy comes against you, you need to say, you aren't getting this. I'm staying. So you need to buy gold and you need to get some white garments. That you may be clothed. Understand, in heaven. So I'm going to have a problem with this. Because in heaven, there's only white garments. I've already told you, in my closet, I do not have a single white shirt. Not one. I, got, I had one for a little while. Finally said, I don't ever wear it. I got rid of it, gave it to somebody else. I don't have any white shirts. So I'm going to have to redo my wardrobe when I get into heaven. I have to have some white stuff. I don't have any white pants. I don't have any white suits. I don't have any white shirts. The only white shirt I have is the T-shirt I put underneath my shirt. I like color. I, I was telling um, uh, Brother Joe, I said, anybody can match a tie with a white shirt. <laughs> That's why I don't have any white shirts. Anybody can. I don't care what tie you get. You can match it with a white shirt. Anybody can do that. It's ridiculous. I like, I like something that's more of a challenge. I like something that has some color to it. Yeah. Get some fun there. But in heaven, guess what? <laughs> it's all white there. So I'm getting all my, my stuff with color out here because I got eternity to be in white. So when I'm down here, no white. Don't buy me a white shirt. I'm not wearing it. No white shoes. No white pants. Nothing. Going to have my fill of white up there. But that's what you're going to have. That's what's going to be up there. White garments that you may be clothed. And the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Wait, we make an eye salve. Yeah, but it's not working because you don't see. You think you're rich. You think you're wealthy. You think all these, but you're not. And you can't see it. You've got an opinion, but it's not based on anything. I am telling you, God is not, he's not telling them this is my opinion. He's saying this is how it is. This is how it is. So you need to buy some gold. You need to get some, yourself some white garments. You need to get yourself ready. That you may be rich, clothed, and can see. That's what God wants them to be able to do. I want you to be rich. I want you to be clothed. I want you to see you can see. Verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Now, we're going to go over all these words, but the first one here, I'm sure that most of you could guess at what this word is. Love is course you would guess wrong 
This word love is not the word agape. You would think it would be, wouldn't you? It is not. And once you've reasoned this out, you're going to figure this out. For, the, for, the, for Jesus loves the whole world, but he chastises those whom he loves. Well, if he loves the whole world, wouldn't he then chastise the whole world? But he only chastises those who are his. Therefore, what this word is, is the Greek word phileo, fond affection. I love the world, but those that I have a fond affection for, they're the ones I chastise. <laughs> Doesn't that make sense, though? It's not agape. It is phileo, fond affection for. God agapes the world, but he disciplines those that are his own. He does not discipline the world. They are not his. Jesus, when he's praying, he says, I pray for those that you have given me. I pray for those that are mine. I don't pray for the world. There are some things he prays for the world, some things he does not because he cannot. He's going to explain a whole lot of that here. As many as I love, as many as I have a fond affection for, as many as I like to be around. <laughs> How many of y'all have some of those people in your life? You love them, but you don't really always like to be around them. Mm -hmm. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. The word there for rebuke, here's a, used in Luke chapter 3, verse 19. But Herod the Tetrarch, being reproved or rebuked by him, John, the Herodias, uh, for Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done. So John was rebuking Herod, trying to get him to get in the back on the course of going in the right way, not just to pick on him. The word there, chasten, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty two. 32, but when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. That verse says it right there again. He loves the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever shall believe on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So he gave his son, he gave his agape love for the world, but the chastening, the judging, this is done for the church. This is done for those that are in the family. It's family business. Hebrews 12, 6, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Revelations 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I said before, this letter has a lot of phrases that we are used to hearing. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will, let, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. He stands at the door and knocks. He does not open the door. He does not go into the door. Can he do that? He's God. I guess he could. But he will not because, no, that's your door. If you want me in, you open it. If you open the door, I will come in. If you don't open the door, I'll stand out here. The word knock is the, in the present tense. It talks about not a past completed action, but an ongoing action. I stand at the door and knock. Knock, 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 knock. He keeps knocking. 
He doesn't stop knocking. He keeps knocking. And the people inside ignore it. They don't come out to open it. They're afraid or whatever it is. They don't come out there and do it. But he stands at the door and he knocks and he knocks and he knocks and he knocks. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. But if you don't open the door, he don't come in. He don't come in. You got to open the door. This is why all the time I say this with you. If you want prayer for something, ask. I haven't just had it, just won't tell you where, when, and how, but just in the last week or two, had somebody come up and say, I want you to pray for so-and-so. Will you do that? I said, if they ask me, I'll just go over there and, and, and get them. No, if they ask me. And so we had a little discussion on it. Well, that, um, she, went, she, she was unclear of this. What do you mean? I said, if they don't ask, they don't put anything in operation. They don't put anything in operation, it's not going to work. I said, your faith might be there, my faith might be there, but they're the one who need the thing. And their faith has to be there. I said, you can bring her up all you want to to be prayed for. It ain't going to help. It ain't going to help at all. Suddenly the light dawned on, oh, yeah, that's why this is going on. Yeah, that's why it is. You got to be careful. You may have a fondness to see someone get prayed for. You, oh, I just want to see them healed. Oh, I just want to see them have this. Oh, they got this. Oh, I just know if we just pray. Uh-huh. They need to open the door. They got their own door. See, if, if it's children and the mom and dad are at home, mom and dad can open the door. But when the children move out, go on their own place, have their own life, they need to open their own doors. They need to come to God and open their own doors. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't barge in. I know the famous pe- picture that is painted of Jesus knocking at the door. How many remember seeing that? It's done with a, with a detail of no handle on the outside for the purpose of he won't open it. He waits for the door to be opened. If it's open, he'll come in. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. We'll have some fellowship. We'll have some time together. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. To him who overcomes. Again, this word is used often in these letters. If you overcome, to him who overcomes, this is what I, there's a promise to those who overcome, not to those who give it a shot. <laughs> not to those who give it their best world. Well, I gave it a good try. I mean, God, I, I worked hard. Nope. Did you overcome? Huh? Okay. See, that's where we're getting away from that in society. You know, we, if you go out there, there are a lot of the sporting events and stuff like that. Everybody gets a trophy. Right? Everybody gets a trophy. Why? Well, they feel bad if they don't get No, who am, him who overcomes, they get the trophy. Not everybody. The one who wins gets the trophy. That's how it should be. You need to win something. You need to overcome something. We're getting out of this, this uh, mentality. No, there are losers and there are winners. When you have a race, one person wins. When you have two teams that are competing, one team wins. That's how it is. But we don't, we don't go out there and give medals to everybody. <laughs> There's a Super Bowl trophy out there, and what team does it go to? The one who won the Super Bowl, not the one who got the bad call and lost the game. 
Not the one, not to the teams who didn't make the playoffs. The team who made the playoff overcame all the adversity and won the game. That's who gets it. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. And I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now understand their, their mentality here. A throne is not just a single seat. It's actually more of a bench. And more people can sit on it. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, this letter is not just to Laodicea. It was to churches. A bunch of churches. We can all learn from all these things. And this is, this is one. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He is standing at our door and knocking. He's looking for a place to come in at. We, he's not in all areas of our lives just yet. There are some areas that we may still keep that uh, reins on, and we just need to say, you know what? You can go ahead and take care of this one. You can go ahead and, and, uh, and take this up. We got to find out what is his, not his opinion, but what his, his view is right. My opinion could very well be wrong. And I have to approach it with that mentality and going in with that thing. What I believe, what I think, does not stack up to what he knows because he knows all things. And when he's ready, he's going to sit me down and he's going to say, Steve, you're ready to take care of that area now. You think it's okay. It's not. <laughs> you need to fix it. Okay. I may be going, you know, 5, 10, 15 years thinking a certain area is okay. And God says, all right, now you're ready to handle this. That's not okay. You need to fix it. I can't have that opinion that says, but wait, uh, but, I, but it's been that way. But, it's, but I thought, mm -mm, nope. You thought you were wealthy. You thought you were rich. You don't know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. <laughs> you're in bad shape. You're in bad. <laughs> you imagine Jesus is looking down on these poor, naked, miserable, wretched people. And they think, man, I got it. I got it all. I am just, I am. Mm. And he's just up there laughing. Yeah, and you got nothing. <laughs> you think you're all this and you got nothing. Nothing at all. Mm. Okay. Oh, my. Father, we thank you for your patience, for your help with us. We know, Father, that you do not have opinions. You have knowledge. You have correct knowledge. And we must learn to always yield to that knowledge every time we come across, come across it. Our opinions don't hold a candle. Our opinions are based on supposition. They're based on partial knowledge. We don't know all the things that are there, but, Father, you do. So when we hear what you had to say, we need to be willing to let go of everything that we have. Father, we thank you for the help that you give us that even in the shape that the Laodicean church was in, you wrote them a letter. You said, look, I only chastise those that I love. I have a fond affection for you. You may be wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, but I have a fond affection for you, and I want to see you come out of it. Father, you have a fond affection for us. We're in your family. We're in your kingdom. We're serving you. I thank you for the help that you give us to become rich, to buy gold refined by your fire. Refined, Father, made ready. White garments, 
that we can be clothed. And Father, I thank you for the help that you give us on that. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.